From the Native American Cultural Center and the Billings Center for the American West at Stanford University, this is Portraits of a Pandemic. Standing Rock, I'm 68 years old, and I came from humble beginnings, you know, where we didn't have no electricity, no running water, and a lot of families still live like that. When I was growing up, we didn't even have a black and white TV. I come from a big family. There was 12 of us in my family, and I'm the eldest out of all my siblings, you know, and I lost two sisters so far from health reasons mm-hmm. and one brother due to mm-hmm. health reasons. Although it's in our treaty rights for the government to help us, well, they just kind of forgot about us, you know. But with this new generation now, people are starting to kind of wake up. Uh, my name is Annette Ann Blackbear. I'm originally from a reservation called the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. This week, we're going to be talking to Finette. Finette is from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, located in the southwest part of South Dakota, near the Wyoming and Nebraska border. It is the ancestral home of the Lakota people. We'll be informing Finette's story by also talking to Professor Karina Walters. She studies cultural, historical, and social determinants of health among Native people at the University of Washington. Hi, everybody. I'm Aja, now speaking to you from the Canarsie lands of the Lenape people in Brooklyn, New York. Throughout the production of this podcast, Hannah and I have been asking ourselves, what defines health? What makes it what it is? As someone who struggles with mental health myself, it's pretty clear to me that we need to take care of more than just our bodies, our minds, our spirits as well. And this is especially important right now as we all go through this collective trauma, frozen at home, working in dangerous situations, and surrounded by death. This week, we've hit 357,000 cases. 
and though people are starting to be vaccinated, an end to this is never going to make up for the loss. Finette and I spoke a while ago. We spoke in summer, well before the vaccine was a glimmer in anyone's eye. And in this episode, we have a lot going on, but we're going to be talking about long-term healing. How do we move through our life and through the generations after trauma? This is a question that is very close to home for Native people. But unfortunately, it's one that we're all going to have to answer for ourselves once this is over. So let's dive back in. So Finette, can you tell us about the Pine Ridge Reservation? Just for anybody who's never been there, what would you want to say about it? It is home for a lot of us. It's a very nice place to a lot of people that never been on the reservation. It's very shocking because of the way of life, it, the way it is. We don't have a lot of resources like that they have in the cities, like with jobs, housing, medical. But culturally and spiritually, we are a very strong nation. That's what survived us after all these years, you know, all these years. Regardless if we don't have too much materialism, things in life, like most people that um, have vehicles, homes, and um, jobs, our way of life is very humble. It's a very humble experience to come from that area because we still have our spirituality, and that's the most ultimate things. Money can't buy that. We have the Black Hills, the Chesapa over there. That's how you pronounce the Black Hills. That is our church, and that's where we originated from, our ancestors. So it's not for sale. Even if there's gold there, it was illegally take, taken away from us. It put us on reservation. The government did. They put us on land that they didn't want. You know, where it's dry and you can't really grow too much crops or anything. Uh, But our natural resources are still there. We have our water and our mineral rights, but it's not for sale. We have gold. We have uh, uranium. Sacred things in the ground that we never touched and is not for sale. You may have heard of the Black Hills, which is now a national park. But originally, the Oglala Lakota declared it the Baja Sapa, and it is an incredibly sacred space for them, as Finette mentioned. It's the location of their origin story, and it's never been for sale. In 1868, the Fort Laramie Treaty was signed between the Lakota and the U.S., which solidified the Lakota's ownership of the Sapa and allocated the people rations. This was really important because agriculture was basically impossible on that land, and the buffalo, a primary source of food, had been extremely disrupted by westward expansion. Things were going okay, but then American civilians discovered gold in the Black Hills, in the Sapa, so they started mining. The Lakota were not happy about this, so they protected their land and their treaty and attacked many of the miners. These miners demanded protection from their government, the U.S. So now we get to the famous part of the story. It's the early 1870s and tensions between the U.S. and tribes all over the Great Plains are rising at an alarming rate. The Lakota with their allies battle the U.S. and particularly the famous General Custer, who took his last stand at Little Bighorn. In a battle where you may also remember the names of venerated native warriors Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Despite Custer's last stand that really should have been called his last stumble, the natives won the battle but lost the war because the U.S. issued an ultimatum. This ultimatum came from Congress in the form of the famous Sell or Starve Act of 1877, which said, in layman's terms, sell us the Black Hills, or we aren't sending any more rations. It cannot be underscored enough 
how much the Lakota desperately needed those rations and how blatantly the U.S. violated the Fort Laramie Treaty. So the Lakota had to concede. Frankly, there was no other way to survive. And after all of this, we carved the faces of four of our presidents into their sacred mountain. The Duenkashila Shape Baha, now called Mount Rushmore. Apologies for the mispronunciation. I don't speak Lakota. We still have that uh, feeling that when we go home, that is our home. You know, I know we don't have adequate housing, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they have they build anymore. I've been back there two years ago, as a matter of fact. Nothing has changed. Everybody's doing the same thing, waiting mm-hmm. for housing. Mm-hmm. So it's very harsh to live there. The Pine Ridge Reservation in the bottom left corner of South Dakota is the poorest county in the U.S. right now. It's a place of extremes. It's extremely isolated, more than 120 miles to the next town and 350 miles to the next city, which is Denver. It has extreme weather with temperatures reaching highs of 110 in the summer and negative 50 in the winter. 97% of the population live below the poverty line with a median income of $2,600 to $3,500 a year. There's no industry, technology, or commercial infrastructure, and there are no banks, motels, and only one grocery store. Infant mortality is extremely high, at 300% more than the national average. Same with teen suicide, which is 150% more than the national average. And the average life expectancy for men is 47, and for women that number is 52. At least 60% of the homes on this res need to be demolished and replaced because of deadly black mold. More than 33% of the homes do not have electricity, running water, or sewage. And the average number of people living in homes is 17, meaning that a lot of people are cramped and sleeping on the floor. And this is a reservation of 3,500 square miles with 20,000 people. These are jarring statistics, and it's important to realize just how extreme this is. And we can certainly expect it to get worse with the pandemic. But before we move on, it's important to think of all of these statistics in two contexts. First, all of these are related to and contingent on the history I told you of the Black Hills and the entire history of the way the Lakota people have been treated by our government and more history that we're going to learn throughout the rest of this episode. The present is a projection of the past, deeply so in this instance. Second, when you hear stats like this, your initial reaction will probably be to feel bad for these people and maybe even to pity them as well. But we all need to remember the strength and belief it takes to stay. Pine Ridge and that area of land has been their home for thousands of years, 10,000 years. It's the last of the land that they legally own. And as Vinette said, it's not for sale. This is their home. So instead of pitying, allow yourself to feel the quiet awe as we imagine a love of home and heritage and culture that could generate such extreme strength. It's probably really difficult, but I think it really demonstrates how much these people care and appreciate for their home. So, Finette, did you grow up speaking Lakota? I spoke my language fluently when I was growing up. I didn't know how to speak English. Later on, when I went to uh, school in Alliance, Nebraska, 
I was the only native there, and it was very hard for me to um, communicate and to understand what people were saying to me. Back in those days, when you were young, we had, we had these books that are real thick. It says Dick and Dick and Jane and Sally, you know, those kind of books. Yeah. <laughs> those sentences. So I had to try to write them. And there was a cat named Puff, I remember that, and the dog's name was Spot. Those were uh, books we had to read out of, you know, and then mm-hmm. when we did our homework or the next day if, if you can then uh, you have to read it out loud in front again in front of everybody walk up to the front of the classroom and read it wow that must have been real scary since you you didn't know the language at all it was a foreign language mm-hmm. for me to learn the english language i had to learn on my own pick up words here and there and as time went on, I kind of got an idea. I still have to look up words now, you know. When, when I hear a big word or an unfamiliar word, I have to get a dictionary and kind of look it up and try to understand. Finette was one of the lucky ones, in a way. Many tribes lost their language, completely, because of government policies that morphed and changed over the years, but nonetheless introduced a whole bunch of troubles for Native people, as they were usually focused on cultural erasure. And this trouble is best exemplified by the term historical trauma. Karina, how would you define historical trauma? Uh, historical trauma are these traumatic events that target a group, usually based on, you know, could be religion, race, nationality, other kinds of things. But for our indigenous people, we were targeted because we're indigenous with the intent to do one of three things, either commit genocide, ethnocide, or epistemicides. So what that means is these historically traumatic events are designed to eradicate a people, eradicate their life ways, like language and culture, and their thought ways in terms of our stories, our understanding of who we are in relation to this world and to each other. I do want to say, though, you can't understand historical trauma without understanding U.S. settler colonialism. And I think this is really important because in the past, I've always taken it for granted that people understand that we kind of still live under this colonial experience here. And so, you know, settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. And so it's a system that is comprised of people who came here and decided to stay. And in staying, that meant that they had to basically erase indigenous people from the landscape to create a new narrative about who they are in relation to land and place. And so settler colonialism was designed to dispossess people of our land, erase indigenous people from the land. Um, And then it's also tied to the importation of slaves to chattel slavery, which is a whole other topic. So understanding it from that point of view, historically traumatic events are the events that support and uphold settler colonialism, which is the structure. So here forms a relationship where historical trauma can be the tool of economic gain. We can see that in the Black Hills example from earlier. But how do we even begin to combat historical trauma and the effects of a structure as large as colonialism? Can you tell me about your family, Finette? My father was a very humble person. You know, he taught us how to pray through the Creator. You know, he said there's only one Creator and one universe, one prayer, one mind, one spirit. And so... uh, he taught us those, and what he taught us, those values and those traditions, some of us carried that on. Most of my family did. And some, they moved to the city at a later on date, uh, 
And so they kind of went into the city life, way of life. They kind of lost their culture, some of them. They went into uh, uh, other society beliefs. But me and my brother and Everett and my sister Lavella, that were, were the three eldest, so we hung on to our cultures, even living in a city now. In our language, we speak it fluently. Finette basically gave me an answer to the previous question with what she just said. Sometimes culture itself can be a solve for historical trauma. I've mentioned Chief Seattle Club before. It's the day center that I interned at a few years ago, and Finette is a member there. This day center offers help for Native people specifically and has a lot of culturally specific programs. Finette, did you go to Chief Seattle Club a lot, like before it was closed? Before it was closed? Yes, I did. You know, I used to help Ray Williams with the well variety on Thursdays and Sundays. Uh, we have the well variety movement where we burn our cedar and sage. We burn it and we start out with a prayer, you know, in a circle. And then uh, we have our talking circles. Whatever you want to talk about, you know, or if you don't want to talk, then you just pass the, the gourd to the next person. Mm-hmm. So we sit there and just whatever's on our mind or you want to sing a song or something like that, you you can, you know. And it, it has helped a lot of people. Uh, I do know that some that's been going there for over a year now, they're still going to it now, you know. They have this talking circle somewhere in Southwest Seattle now, but they, there's social distance, you know. You have to sit six feet apart and with your mask on. So that's still going on right now, and that's good. So Welbriety is... AA for Native folks. Now, when we think about Alcoholics Anonymous, most people don't think of that as something people do for their health. We often think about it as something people do to cease addiction, and that's definitely what it's for. But ceasing addiction is also for your body. It's for your health. It's for your well-being. And what Wellbriety does is teach folks how to use tools to better their life, to cease their addiction, and to live a healthier life. But they do that in a way that is specific to Native people. It has culture in mind. It is very much culturally aware. And usually it's run by Native folks themselves. And this can be really, really helpful in populations that struggle with trusting Western established medicine. And it's really important to also realize that things like Wellbriety can work for other groups too. And that's why it's so powerful. But Finette, why do you think Wellbriety works so well? The world variety movement. It's yeah. just our way of life because it's in our DNA. Some of us were brought up that way, so it just comes natural to us. We just uh, live it day by day, you know, all our lives. So it's a good teaching. It's a good value book, traditions, power of prayer. It helps everybody. A lot of people have a hard time finding that road. Living in the city is very hard. Because you go into other way of life, other roads, you know, and then you you lose your way. We have to teach the young people, uh, you know, these teachings and these values and just carry on, you know. Pray for them that they will see the light. Some of them uh, get into the stereotype of way of living and they get into gangs and they get into drugs and they get into someplace incarcerated, you know, and they kind of lose your way. But there's always hope. You know, just teach the young ones, start them out young when they're toddlers, you know. That way, what you teach them when they're toddlers, they carry on in life. 
I'm really thankful for my ancestors for teaching me these ways to live this way of life, you know. Somebody said a prayer for me long time ago, maybe one of my grandmothers years ago. Her prayer is still with me. Wow. That's what I believe. That's beautiful. And he'll never leave your side, you know. That's what uh, the World Bride is about, spirituality. And it's our way of life because it's in our DNA with indigenous people. That's how we were raised and that's it's still in our DNA. The Creator put us here on purpose. We call it the Red Road, you know, because that's in our teachings. But it is also a good road, you know, the, the good road. It, it is a good way of life. But we still have our ceremonies and we still have our sweat lodges and we still have our prayers. We still have our language and our teachings. That's what keeps us going. We're very resourceful and resilient people, and we survive despite the impact of some of these events. So when we talk about historical trauma, I don't want to focus only on the potential pathology or the impact on people that place people at uh, greater risk for health or mental health outcomes. But we also have to understand that people also manage those events in ways that were resilient and didn't allow themselves to be defined by those. But that, again, varied based on the chronicity of the events, how many events certain communities experienced, how close these events were to the present generation and, and so forth. The research that I've done on some of this has basically shown that even after controlling for one's lifetime traumatic events like childhood sexual trauma or adult sexual trauma and physical abuse and military combat exposure, even after controlling for all of those things, um, we still saw an effect two or three generations back historically traumatic event exposure on subsequent PTSD and depression in present generations. So it suggests that there is something going on that still could potentially persist for some populations in subsequent generations. So Finette, you live by yourself. What do you, what do you like do during the day? How are you carrying on personally? I pray every day. Like I get up 4.30 in the morning, I go outside. I live in a city, but I have my own designated little place, you know. So mm -hmm. I, pu I put my tobacco down, you know, uh, offering for guidance, protection, and wisdom, strength for all people, you know. My father told me years ago when I was young that, you know, there's one prayer. We all pray to the same creator, regardless mm -hmm. of what denomination you come from. It's one prayer, one one creation. I try to think positive, you know, and try to find something to do for human mankind, even if it's just a, you know, a wave from far away, wave at somebody, you know, because a lot of people are struggling right now. Some are isolated, you know, and just a, a wave across the street or something like that, you know, elderly, you know, wave mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. Some of them kind of look away, you know, because, you know, but uh, it's okay. <laughs> I managed to uh, keep busy, you know. Uh, I uh, read what I can, you know, although it's kind of hard to understand some books, you know, so I have to have a dictionary on hand. That's just my way of life looking at, uh, you know, these words. So, Finette, you've told me you're an essential worker. Essential yeah. worker, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. 
I hope people have been thanking you for that. Or the people doing my building, you know, the ones that, uh, you know, uh, it's, I just uh, sanitized the whole place there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, my coworker and I, you know, uh, he does the le- electrician, you know, and I do the sanitizing the, the building. And how has it been to be an essential worker? I mean, it sounds like from what you've said that you're able to maintain some distance, but how is it? Is it scary? Well, uh, well, somebody has to do it, you know, <laughs> uh, to, to do the essential work, you know. We just keep our distance. Where I work, everybody has their own unit that they live in, and some of them have underlying health problems, you know, so they don't never come out. So they kind of stay in their unit and it's scary some of them are probably scared to come out you know some i haven't seen for a while and i when i do see some it's just the ones that have to walk their dogs you know they have to wear masks all the time and just be real careful and just be aware of what's going on around your surroundings you know at all times so essential workers they have to go on you know because you know without essential workers you know this virus could get out of control so that's what I do. I try to help the people and try to help them somehow, in some mm-hmm. way, even if it's something little, you know, trying to keep the virus from not getting anywhere, you know, prevent it, you know, so mm-hmm. they find a cure for it, you know, so mm-hmm. hopefully they do find a cure. There's no cure right now, you know. We don't even mm-hmm. know too much about this virus right now. So besides essential work, you've told me that you're really interested in activism. Is it something that you still do? Is it kind of just something that you've always done? How would you think about it? I'm still doing it because it's just in the blood. And it has a lot of meaning, you know. And have you been going up with them to protest for Black Lives Matter? Uh, I support it very strongly, but I social distancing, you know. As a matter of fact, the other day I went to one uh there was a gathering over there at um, Green Lake. Mm-hmm. So I went uh, last Saturday. But I kept my distance. I had to keep my distance. So, so did a lot of other people. You know, we was up by the trees over there, but we went there to support. And, and anytime there's a police brutality killing or something, I used to, uh, before the pandemic started, I used to uh, attend those the police brutality support for the families, you know. Also, the native issues, you know, I try to be there, you know. I don't really speak or anything like that, but um, I go there with prayer. It's my way of life. I feel uh, really comfortable doing it, you know, helping individuals, you know, just being there and supporting them somehow. Even if I don't say nothing, you know, just being there makes me uh, feel like I'm doing something worthwhile, you know, to help someone. And when did you actually leave the res? I mean... I remember you mentioning that when you left is kind of when you started doing activism, but how did that happen? Well, uh, when I was 14 years old, uh, my sister and I, we were looking through some books, some newspapers and catalogs, and I remember I said that, you know, there's got to be somebody out there, you know, that maybe we should go out there and see if we could, you know, be like them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> on a, we got a ride, you know, somebody was going that way, so we got so far and we got a ride to Denver. The first thing we went to when we got downtown Denver, we'd never seen that many high buildings before in our lifetime. The Mile High City. Mm-hmm. Oh, I never seen so many. It was so amazing. It was really uh, indescribable. We saw all these high buildings. People were moving fast, you know. And then um, when we got there, we couldn't find my sister's apartment. And somebody told her it was like six, eight miles down the road. 
uh, we ran into a protest there, you know, at Capitol Hill. Back mm-hmm. in those days, they had all these civil rights protests back in the 60s, you know. So we, we joined them. Wow. Uh, <laughs> we walked with them. And that's just like like just when you got there, right? Yeah, right there at Capitol, <laughs> Capitol Hill, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we joined the, the big crowd. I never seen that many people. And, and did you know what these protests were about or why they were happening? We just joined it because it, people, it seems like, uh, you know, that everybody was yelling and I knew it had to do something with the people, you know, for the people. That's all I knew. And so this is how you got your start. That's how I got my start, being there in Denver when I was a teenager. So as time went along, I kind of got aware of what it was all about, you know, civil rights for people. And I thought about, about my people back home, you know, the way we grew up, you know, why, why can't they have that? You know, why can't they have a, a home? Why can't they have a, a car? You know, why can't they have a house, a job? So I kind of hung around Denver there with uh, protesters. It was always going on, you know. We didn't have no money. We just had what we had, very uncomfortable. So we kind of joined with the hippies, you know, where everything was peace, you know, back in those days. Yeah. The lifestyle was very unique. They all wore beads, you know, and they had uh, tons of beads on them. (laughs) (laughs) Tons of beads on them, and their lifestyle was so, so different. Everybody cared for each other, you know. You never went hungry, you know, or nothing like Mm -hmm. that. Everybody shared. And did it remind you of home? Um, Well, it's all about home. But I said, well, I gotta keep on going because I'm off the res now. I gotta keep on going wherever I'm gonna go. I know the reservation will always be there, and my family, other relatives, will always still be there. But uh, looking at a different way of life then, it, it just kind of amazed me. You know, there's got to be something out here. Gotcha, gotcha. I guess what I'm very curious about is, do you feel like the way they lived their lives were compatible with the way you lived your life? when you were living on the res with your family? Well, it was different and it was comfortable because they had compassion too. That's how we grew up, you know, uh, in our home. We had compassion for one another. Uh, the only thing is that they were not natives, you know, and uh, it's, it's similar values. So I kind of felt comfortable with that lifestyle, you know. They had compassion. They shared everything back in those days, you know. Here we're seeing an example of how culture can be very healing for people. And I want to be clear that, you know, everything Finette has said is important and real because it's real for her. The way she has used culture to heal herself and to weather so many storms isn't a prescription for everybody. It's her way of doing it. But it is a fantastic example of how engaging with culture, how believing in your culture and following it and using it as something to brace against sometimes can be extremely helpful, especially when there have been people your whole life and far before it who've wanted to destroy that culture for their own gain. And that is what's so important about what she's doing here. Historical trauma is really about reconnecting to the power, love, and vision that our ancestors carried for us in their hearts as they imagined a future for us. And that our job as contemporary indigenous people is to reconnect to that vision and love and life and to manage that in our contemporary context so that we create opportunities for our future generations and also heal 
any un unresolved hurts that we still carry in our bodies, in our bones, and in our uh, activities in daily life, that we can take this as a place of power and move forward in a beautiful way. You know, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. And I, I always like to say, well, our ancestors had a dream for us and they dreamed us. And now through our actions today, we can dream our future generations. So it's a, a, an exciting time, an exciting place to be. Before we go, Fanat, would you mind translating the prayer you said for us before? Well, I ask for guidance, protection, strength, uh, for all the ones that need help in the hospitals with this uh, virus that's going around, and for all the young ones for the next generation to walk this red road and never forget the Creator. I ask that in humbleness. We also wanted to take a moment at the end of this episode to dedicate it to Colleen Beryl and Herbert Jr. Black Bear. They're Finette siblings who passed away. And she told me that in Lokota, they use the word toksha, which means later because they have no word for goodbye. So toksha to Colleen Beryl and Herbert Jr. Hey, Yaja. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. I just listened to your recording with Finette and it was just so powerful to hear her speak on what it means to be healthy for her and how she's been maintaining that sense, um, you know, post-COVID and now. Through listening to the recording uh, with Fanat, I really got the sense that she's used culture in this sense as a salve for, for well-being, for health. And something that really resonated with me was this, this last piece that you're saying, how Fanat maintains health is really neat to herself. But it's different for everyone. I think it was important to hear Finette say the story to, you know, hear one piece of what it means to be healthy. It's really a point of resistance that she's been able to maintain her language, especially, you know, in thinking about the historical context. You gave some in a very complicated history, you know, of assimilation of boarding schools where it was dangerous to speak your own language. And, you know, not that long ago in the past 50 years of removing children from their families into non-native families where the language is lost and in losing the language it's not just words it's how you're connected to your ancestors and your past totally and i i resonate with so much of what you just said and i think that one finette is just an amazing person she is a beast she's so awesome i love talking to her and i totally agree and i think that what is so powerful about what she said is that Finette is just completely herself. It's not about her being prescriptive. It's not about her telling other people to do it like this. She's just saying, this is who I am. These are the things I do and they're important to me and I'm going to keep doing them. And I think that's a really important message because I think that you're so right. Um, it is an act of resistance to be who you are sometimes, especially when you're a person who's native, when your culture has really been eviscerated um, and when there are people who are literally still trying to dismantle it. And I think that the things you said about mental health are, are so real and so true because mental health for so long has been stigmatized. Um, and we talked about this before, but, you know, mental health was such a big part of native knowledge ways before first contact and after and that's really been changed by american and western stigma towards mental health but i think it is so important because mental health is a massive part of health as a concept and i think you're going to get into this this week right why don't you tell us about your episode that's coming up absolutely so next week we're going to be speaking to the director of indian health services telebehavioral health center of excellence dr chris four and he's going to be talking about how telehealth is expanding and access to address 
uh, some of these mental health needs that we talked about this week. And one of the reasons this is so critical, not only because of the precedence of mental health playing such a critical role in overall health, but especially now during COVID-19, we all know there are so many more stressors um, and pressures on mental health and well-being than there have been for a long time, but especially depending on your circumstances and what you know what you have access to to maintain your health, your well-being, to have even mental health and well-being around having economic stability as you talked about in this episode. Definitely. And you and I were talking about how it is really concerning to think about mental health right now because at the end of the day, we're working with populations that have unusually high rates of suicide, especially during the winter. That's particularly for the homeless population in Seattle. It just gets really dark there and it's quite cold and that does affect people's mental health. And as I mentioned before, Pine Ridge, like unfortunately many other reservations, has a very, very high rate of suicide, especially among young people. And so it's so important now to reach as many people as possible. And so I'm I'm so excited to hear about, you know, how that can be expanded with telehealth. And I'm also super stoked to hear that they're already including ideas of mental health with telehealth because for so long they've been really separate entities and they, I think they really shouldn't be in you know, we have to be thinking about health and mental health as one and the same. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited to speak to you all next week as we're joined with Dr. Chris Four. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. A quick update, Finette is doing great. She's still at home in Seattle. I just talked to her and she's, of course, as always, in pretty good spirit. So I'm super happy for her. And again, thank you, everybody, for listening. And please subscribe to us on Spotify, Anchor. You can find more information about where to listen to the podcast on our website, pop.stanford.edu. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye.